0: From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. It was a very explicit, overt erasure. Her voice still matters, and that the struggle has been going on for longer than we might care to to consider. She was carrying
1: so much. I'm Sarah Fenske. This past weekend, a gripping new play had its world premiere at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis, and it already has plans to take on New York City. Dreaming Zanzile tells the story of Miriam Makeba, the South African-born singer burst into American consciousness in the late 1950s. That was long before white-bred America was fully prepared for the idea that black is beautiful. But Miriam Makeba's talents, nevertheless, opened the door for instant stardom. And that is Miriam Makeba's first big American hit, Pata Pata. Uh, Miriam Makeba's life is now front and center at Dreaming Zenzile. The play had its world premiere last weekend at The Rep. And joining us today to tell us all about it is its writer and star, Somi Kakoma. Somi, welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> So, Somi, your play is really wonderful, and you're so good in it. But I have to wonder, I mean, Marianne Makeba is such a legend. What is it like to try to bring this woman to life again for audiences that may remember exactly what she looked like and sounded like?
0: Um, Well, you know, obviously it's it's always daunting when you try to um, step into the shoes of an icon, and I think somebody that I've definitely looked up to, Throughout my life, and, and most certainly throughout my career as an artist, as a vocalist in particular, um, but I think the greatest gift, or one of the many gifts of this this journey, I've been I started writing this this project uh, in February of 2015. Mm. Um, so for me, it's really been about surrender and stretching myself artistically, vocally, in um, in every sense as a performer, as a writer as a as a singer, hmm. as a keeper of song, I should
1: say. A keeper of song. So you mentioned uh, that this began all the way back in 2015. This has had a long and, and somewhat tumultuous life. You were basically ready to open back in March of 2020. Is that right? Yes, um, which at that
0: time already felt like a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started the musical, uh, the process of writing it, I remember... Somebody in New York at the public theater said, you know, usually it takes five years to write a musical. And I was like, oh, you don't know me. And I'll be, you know, I'll be <laughs> faster than that. And, and sure enough, five years later, it was supposed to open here at the Rep. And um, a week before opening night, the pandemic hit. And it was, um, you know, like everyone else, it was a devastating, huge change in the way that we live our lives. And we're continuing to um, adapt in this very moment. So I'm grateful for the support of the Rep. And the measures they put in place so that we feel safe as artists and all of my collaborators um, and just even the cultural workers and students around the production can get back to what we love So that and, must have, uh, and do it safely.
1: Th- that must have just been so heartbreaking. I mean, you were gearing up for so long. You're finally ready to bring this to the world. And, you know, so many of us were impatient during the pandemic. When can I get mm-hmm. back to doing what I want to do? Was that just times mm-hmm. 10 for you since you had this musical all set to go? I mean, I won't say it's times ten. I
0: think the pandemic was devastating for everyone in small and large ways um, and i you know I think I would, I would be remiss if i if I tried you know thankfully god willing i was uh I've been healthy throughout this pandemic, and so i I'm more thankful for that. I mean, yes, it was completely devastating. It took me a while to allow myself to grieve that because I think I was so focused on like everybody back in new york and I had left New York. I had come here from New York, and my home was in New York, and so I didn't return to it because it was the height of the pandemic. At at the time, it was the global epicenter. Um, But I I was just thinking, you know, how selfish would it be if if I'm sitting here mourning a story? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but so it took me some time to actually allow myself to mourn that, to mourn the process, um, which, of course, I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, it, 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 it was humbling, you know, it, 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 that, I mean, like you, you all, I'm sure you already know, you, this time of isolation, of quietude, asked us to consider what's most important in our lives, mm-hmm. and definitely um, this work is hugely important to me. I feel so grateful to be able to finally bring this story, specifically Miriam Makeva's story, to light, um, but everything in divine time, you know, that's how I feel. And, uh, it took me a while to get past it and I just decided to focus on, on other things. I literally just didn't even look at the play (laughs) for, I would say, over a year. I just, it was, it was almost too painful. Uh, but, uh, but I, you know, I've come back to it and it just feels like the right time. And in many ways, her story resonates in a perhaps a more profound way because of everything that this country has been wrestling with, um, politically, um, in terms of, conversations around race and society, you know, and and I just think that um, she reminds us that her voice still matters and that the struggle has been going on for longer than we might care to to consider. Mm -hmm. But I think even through the writing of the project, that's something that kept coming back to me, like, I'm writing about the same thing that was happening 50, 60 years ago, you know, Um, and so I think she's an incredible example of an artist who used her voice to um, speak truth and hopefully offer comfort.
1: Yeah, she spoke truth and and really paid a price for it. For those who aren't so familiar with her story, can you tell us just a little bit? She was born into apartheid South Africa. Um, Well, technically, she was born in
0: 1932. Apartheid didn't start until the 1940s. So she but, you know, the, you know, her teenage years really is when she began to feel the, the cruel effects of it, I would say, or like early, like preteen. Um, so, yes, uh, she never really had the opportunity to enjoy um, being free in, in, in every sense of that word until she returned to South Africa, you know, after 31 years in exile, very late in her life. Mm -hmm.
1: And so she had grown up, had her teenage years under this regime, um, and then she kind of hit it big as a singer, and she got crossways with that regime. What exactly did she do that ended up uh, leading to the South African government telling her, hey, you're not welcome here, you can't come back even for your mother's funeral?
0: Sure. I mean, I would say, firstly, I should just correct Slightly. So, yes, the apartheid regime began officially in, 19, in the 1940s, um, but there had already been oppression against black people, the indigenous population in South Africa, for a long time prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't institutionalized until the 40s. So she really did experience just extreme oppression and racism throughout her life in South Africa. Um So when she, you know, she did still enjoy a certain amount of success and fame in South Africa. She was a huge star there long before she left. She didn't leave until um, 1959. She was 27. Hmm. And um, she was in a film, an American filmmaker was there, you know, invited her to be in in a film. And that film ended up premiering at Venice Film Festival. He invited her to come somehow by the grace of... All good things and the universe. She found her way to Italy um, and was able to get a passport at that time. And but then that became this sort of launching pad for her international visibility. And in many ways, the apartheid regime was threatened by it. Hmm. Threatened by the 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 sound, the the volume of her microphone. Right, that she could literally reach so many people um, through her performances, through her interviews, and she began to really. Um, User platform to talk about what the conditions of home, which was really brave, because if you think about it, she had left everyone and everything she loved at home. Um, but those were the choices that most people who were in political exile at that time had to make, either mm-hmm. speak, speak openly and truthfully um, at the risk of um, your family being compromised, but also understanding that you're speaking on behalf of a, a much larger project and vision of... Um, quality and dignity.
1: And so she got crosswise with the South African government, but she also got crosswise with the American government. Um, They became very angry with her. And this was related to the the civil rights struggle here in the U.S. Yes. Um, You know, I
0: think that the global black movement for freedom, especially at that time in the 50s and 60s civil rights movement, the African independence explosion that was happening. Um, there were so many parallels to her own struggle, you know, in South, their struggle in South Africa, the struggle of, you know, anti-colonialism and the civil rights movement here in the United States. Um, and she ended up finding, you know, a, a community of people who understood her, her experience. And she married Stokely Carmichael, who was one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party, and because of that, um, really her fame and um, was taken from her. Not, not necessarily her fame, I won't say her fame, but her career was taken from her. And was this just the the, kind
1: of a, a subtle blacklisting that, that she experienced or something more overt? No, no, no.
0: No, it was very overt. Um, I mean, literally overnight, everything just sort of shut down. Hmm. Um, and I always think about it as a very kind of violent cultural erasure, you know, and it, it speaks to the fact that if you're in Europe, or if you're in South America or you're in, you know, in Africa, if you talk about Miriam Makeba, people know exactly who she was, you know? And whereas here, it's very hit or miss. And I can never seem to pinpoint if it's generational, if it's cultural, if it's, you know, and so, yes, you'll find people who are like, yeah, I know Pata Pata, or I remember the click song, or they might not even know it was her who sang it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I find that really interesting considering the, Circle she was moving in. You know, she was on the cover of Time, her third day in, in the United States. She was best friends with Nina Simone. She sang at the same birthday party for JFK that Marilyn Monroe did. She was hanging out with, I mean, just her her circle was, um, you know, the upper echelons of Hollywood and entertainment and, and politics, too. She was very close to Harry Belafonte and a lot of people in the civil rights movement were artists as well. So, it, it was a very explicit, overt erasure, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I think that that's why this work has been so important to me, is to undo that silence around, to resurrect her very um, rightful place in the cultural memory of this country. I mean, if you think about it, Pata Pata was such a huge hit. The Supremes, I believe, covered it. Cher covered it. You know, I mean, there were and these were like the biggest stars of the time, right? Um Not saying those versions are the best versions because I love her, (laughs) but but I will say that it but it does speak to her celebrity at that time, and 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 she wasn't a one hit wonder type of person, right? Like that's the song people remember, but also, you know, she went on to become the first African woman to win an African artist to win a Grammy, you know, with Harry Belafonte and so many things. I mean, and she was you know an ambassador for the for the UN. She was always speaking out at the U.N. on behalf of of, um, the apartheid movement, anti-apartheid movement. And so I just find it interesting. It, it, It had to be overt because that's why it has sustained itself this long, that kind of erasure. It really obviously was effective, you know.
1: Yeah, she was on such a trajectory. It just seemed like, you know, she she came to the U.S. and just immediate stardom, and then it just all comes to a screeching halt. It seems like this could be the only thing that would explain that that just quick fall from consciousness.
0: Yes, but I mean, and and I don't want to give people the impression that she wasn't still performing, but she just didn't have, obviously, the visibility here in the United States, and I know that we have a tendency to be very kind of... um, American-centric in terms mm-hmm. of our perception of culture, you know, and and what what is um, success, quote unquote success, and and this, you know the visibility that we have here in the U.S. Even though she was thriving in Europe on, and on the continent, um, but I was the continent of Africa. But I would also add that it was in the 1980s when she began a tour with Paul Simon in the Graceland tour with um, also with yuma Masekela who she was at one point married to as well, um, that the, in the 1980s she came back, and that was her first reintroduction to the American public. You know, that's when they started, like, oh, right, Miriam McKay, but that's really when she began to tour again, because I guess at that point everything had died down mm-hmm. in some way, and there was space for her to start touring here again, you know, but she was obviously much older at that point.
1: Our guest today is Somi Kokoma. She is playing Miriam Makeba in the new play at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. That play is called Dreamings and Zile. Uh, Somi also wrote that play. Um, this has been her baby. She's worked on it for years. And so getting to talk to her about Miriam Makeba is such a treat. Um, if you want to get tickets to that play, it's uh, repstl.org. It's running now through early October. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Somi. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. back to our conversation. We're talking today to Somi Kakoma. She is the writer and star of the new musical Dreaming Zanzile. It tells the story of Mariam Makeba and had its world premiere right here in St. Louis at the Repertory Theater just this past weekend. Now, Somi, we were talking about how interesting it is that some people in America know all about Mariam Makeba. Other people don't know so much at all. You have kind of an interesting background. You grew up in Champaign, Illinois, but your parents were from Rwanda and Uganda. I'm wondering if you had a sense of who Mariam Makeba was as a child, if this was something they played in the house.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think most Africans are familiar with her mm-hmm. <laughs> in some way, in some form. You know, most people grew up um with an awareness. I didn't have the awareness of her life story, her journey until I began the research. And and I to the point that I was surprised at how much I didn't know. Um So for me, um, it's also really been a joy, you know, because as the first African woman, you know, African artist, in many ways, because my work, yes, I grew up mostly in the United States, um, but because I'm always kind of representing this hybridity, this kind of here and there, this, you know, um, the, the, the East and the West, if you will, um, both sides of the Atlantic, I, I feel as though she is the first person who made room for myself and really any African artist. I mean, she was the first one to really hold space on the global cultural stage um, in, an, in a real way. And, um, and certainly the first uh, vocalist and female artist um, to do so. There's a Nigerian artist, um, I think his name was Ola Tunji the drums of passion. Anyway, he was kind of the first, if you will, but it was a percussion project. And so she was the first like singer. And so in many ways for me, she's the one who made room for my story, for countless others, for any art any African artist you see in whatever genre um, or discipline they're doing. Um, I think that she was able to, um, you know, create space for us. And as a space maker, I feel incredibly indebted to her because I think that it allows me to lean into hybridity, to lean into the liminal, to mm-hmm. lean into being all of myself. So, yes, I certainly grew up listening to her um, because my parents loved her. Uh, but I also, it's been a real gift to discover more of her story. And I think mm-hmm. what I'm most moved by humbled by is the generosity of, of her not only her spirit but as an artist how generous she was because when you understand what she was living through what she was carrying um, at all times but yet she still showed up with so much joy you know you don 't mm-hmm. think of Miriam McCabe and think of like melancholy music right you yeah. don't think of, <laughs> of of sadness and I think that was the real kind of cognitive dissonance from me at the beginning of this process it was Okay, wait, I'm doing all of these kind of like cheery songs, but there's all of this there's this undertone that is um about a a real life, you know, and I think that 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 really she was carrying so much on behalf of a people right mm-hmm. um she sacrificed so much personally on behalf of a movement um and uh Um, I'm just so humbled by that, grateful for it, inspired by it.
1: And so that that sort of undertone that that you see in her life but is not so easy to catch in her music. I feel like you really are bringing this out in your own music. Your new album, which is not out yet, but it, it's coming out here in just a week or so, a couple weeks here. Uh this is Actually, called Actually no, it's
0: coming out we moved it entirely to oh. next year.
1: Oh, it's been moved <laughs> again. Okay. <laughs> I apologize yeah. for that. I was told okay. October. Thank I've you. got the wrong info. I know. Um, I know. But there is a song that is out from this album. Um, And this is these songs I imagine are all inspired by Marian McCaba, but we played earlier her version of Pata Pata. I want to play now your version of Pata Pata. This is a much different version of the song. Let's let's hear an excerpt of this now.
0: Saku kukasati pega bau Saku kukasati pega Saku kukasati pega bau Oh, <tiny> hiya <singing> mama hiya mamma hiya ma Apata pata hiya mama hiya ma Oh hiya mama hiya mamma hiya The message I'm trying to give to my audience is not one. I am just trying to make them understand me as a person and uh, understand my country.
1: And that is the song Pata Pata by Somi. Uh, Somi is here with us today. She is also, of course, Somi Kakoma, the playwright behind Dreaming Zenzile, uh, which is now open at the Rep, tells the story of Marianne Makeba. Um, but this song really puts a different twist on this. Somi, tell us about uh, what you're doing here with this song. Well, I think there are a couple of things. One is, um, and uh, you know, she didn't really
0: really love that song it Mm -hmm. just became like the biggest hit in her life and you know she had to it's it's just the nature of the business people are going to expect her to perform the song right so initially i wasn't going to actually put it on the record because i was like i don't want to sing it if she didn't like singing it and you know why would i do it now but i thought it was an invitation it was a way to invite listeners to the what she the undertone of what she was going through right i mean First of all, just to be clear, that's the music for my um, studio album project, very different from the music in the play. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would say that my intention in making it a darker, slower, you know, uh, minor kind of other thing (laughs) was to ask people to consider, and that's her voice also speaking, you know, and there are like these excerpts of interviews of her talking about her, you know, what what she believes she's been doing, you know, the, the issues that she's been dealing with back home and on behalf of her people back home. And so I really just wanted to invite people to listen to it, to Pata Pata, but to actually consider the larger issues. And I think that's why she didn't really care about Pata Pata, because it was this very kind of um, flippant party tune, whereas she felt like her other songs, there was so much meat and weight And so in a way, perhaps it was like some way of me hoping to invite a listener and to consider, to listen to the song they know first, but then realize that, oh, this is a political animal Mm -hmm. that we're considering, right? Um, Yeah.
1: So so so, so that, the story that goes happen. that she had a heart attack while singing this song and and that that was the heart attack that ultimately killed her. Is that something that was on your mind as you were singing this version and where you're sort of grappling with just how much weight was on her shoulders? Um I I think her death is, you know,
0: in many ways uh Something that motivated a lot of the, 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 the structure of the play mm-hmm. and the story. Um, I think, yes, it was the last song she performed. She did not collapse on stage, um, but she finished the song and, and went to the wings and, and
1: collapsed. I mean, that speaks and volumes right there that <laughs> she, she, she went on, she, she walked off that stage.
0: She finished it, exactly. And I just, I always, I, it, I can only speak of it as a beautiful death right? Because she finished. She was like, I'm going to finish the song, I'm going to give everything, you know, um, to the audience, and then I'm going to leave. And I think, you know, that's, to me, that was the beginning of of the reflection on her life, especially when I found out the meaning of her first name, Zenzile, which is, you know, the play is Dreaming Zenzile, and Zenzile means you have done it to yourself. So it was really meant to be a meditation on the, the agency we have both in the way that we live and in the, ways that, the way that we die, right? And so, um, yeah, I just, I, I was so moved by how she left us, and um, and it just seemed as though it was in, in, in parallel to how she lived.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's so moving. This play is so moving and it, it just, it brings Mary and Micaba to life and then we also see, I, I don't think I'm giving any spoilers away, um, you know, just kind of grappling with that death. It's a play that sort of takes us up and, and takes us down and, and so me, I have to say, watching this, this seems like such a strenuous part. I mean, you're basically on this stage, the entire play, and you have to do so much singing and dancing and and acting. Did you have to almost approach this role like an athlete? Yeah, I would say... <laughs> that's funny. I
0: w- I'm only saying it's funny because yesterday a friend of mine was like, how do you feel? And I was like, you know, the biggest thing that I'm acclimating to is um, is is the physical demand. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, when you're do- inside of the story, there's a spiritual process, there's the musical side of it, there's the vocal process, but like when it really is on its feet, it's really been... Um, it's been it's been challenging in, in exciting ways, you know, and and thrilling um, too. Because at the end of the day, I just feel like it's stretching me in all these wonderful new ways. And yes, it definitely is an athletic endeavor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm I'm excited to lean into to the challenge of it because she deserves
1: that. So I got to see the play in previews, but you did have the world premiere this past weekend. What kind of reaction did you get from the audience? Um I would like to believe the reaction has been positive so far. Um, the reviews have like, certainly been raves
0: yeah it's been it's been a really um St Louis has been very generous and um kind to us so um, you know we learn from every show and uh i'm you know I'm excited to be here and to be doing it you know through October third and um, and just continuing to stretch and grow and learn from the work itself and from the audiences. So um, it's been going well so
1: far. God. And so you have this this kind of grueling physical thing you're doing here in St. Louis through October 3rd, but when that's over, this isn't the end of this. This play is already booked to head to the East Coast, to New Jersey, and then to New York. Can you tell us just a little bit about those plans? Sure, um,
0: so at the top of uh, 22, we will open at Princeton's McCarter Theater, Um, and we'll do a month long, a month run there. And, uh, then that's from January 13th to the, to February 13th, I believe. And then we'll do just a short run in Boston at arts Emerson for about, um, seven to 10 days. I'm not entirely sure. Sometime in in February as well. And then we'll land off Broadway at New York theater workshop, um, in the spring. So I'm excited about that. That's going to be a two month, um, run of, you know, this is my first foray into theater and my first foray into acting, so it's really, um, it's really thrilling for me, um, to stretch out in this way as a writer and as a performer, and, um, I'm just grateful for all of the producing entities and, uh, institutions who've shown up. In addition to the theaters I've mentioned, also the Apollo Theater in New York is a co-producing, as uh, is part of the producing consortium, um, and, uh, the National Black Theater as well in Harlem, and Octopus Theatricals, So I'm, mm. I'm excited.
1: Well, this is a chance for St. Louis audiences to say, we heard it here first. We always joke about how we're just behind New York, we're behind L.A. In this case, we are ahead of them, so thank you for that. <laughs> yeah,
0: so grateful to the rep, so grateful to Hannah Sharif. We met, you know, years before she was here, you know, we had mm-hmm. met. And so she's really very generous of her and, and the whole team at the rep to um, take this on and also i would also just say that the way that they held us even when the production was canceled i mean there was no way that we weren't we weren't going to come back because you know they just saw to it that we were you, you know they were like you guys can stay here if you need to you can you know they saw out our contract mm-hmm. it was just so incredibly generous Um, And so it it just feels like such a wonderful place to um, come. And also, you know, being a Midwestern girl, it feels good to be here and driving distance from my mom's house.
1: (laughs) That's amazing. Back to your roots in Illinois. Well, I'm so glad this has all worked out. This play has finally had its world premiere. That, again, is Dreaming Zenzeli. It's playing at the Rep now through October 3rd. Uh, Tickets at repstl.org. Somi Kakoma, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. And I want to go out of this interview with just a little more Miriam Makeba. <laughs> This episode was produced by Sarah Fenske and Laura Hamden, with audio engineering by Aaron Dore and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. (laughs) Understanding starts here.